welcome to season four of Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that compares the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I am your host, oh. Hannah Chapman. It's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> and I am your host, Lauren Burke. This year, we're going to be doing things a little differently. Season four will be comprised of mini seasons. So we're going to have a few very focused seasons and they're all going to centre around a different theme. So the first up is Northanger Abbey. This is technically season 4.1. And um, this mini series will be five episodes long. The first three will be discussing Northanger Abbey with an Austin expert. And we'll also have an episode that tackles the adaptations. And that's everything that we can really get our hands on, including like film, comic, you know, theatre, Whatever you got, guys, let's just throw it at us. Um, And of course, we are going to have an episode that is dedicated to our lovely read-along folks who are currently discussing Northanger Abbey and related texts in our Facebook group right this very minute. And um, I realize that not all of our listeners are going to be reading along with us. So, Hannah... Why don't you go ahead and give us a summary of Northanger Abbey so those newbies that are listening right now will know what exactly we're talking about today. I I mean, summaries make me nervous because I'm always like, oh, this is where it kind of like, what's the thing that you think is important about this book? So my nutshell is that Northanger Abbey is the tale of a young man named John Thorpe and his adventures (laughs) through the cities of Bath and the trials and tribulations (laughs) that he faces uh, breeding and riding horses. Wow. How about that? Wow. That sounds like a different book than the one I'm reading. I like that book. (laughs) That's the book I want. (laughs) No, but seriously... Northanger Abbey is the story of 17-year-old Catherine Morland, who is taken to the grand city of Bath by childless family friends, the Allens. And while she's there, she's befriended by two very different families, the Thorpes and the Tilneys. What follows is a tale of expectation versus reality. Quite a bit like the scene in 500 Days of Summer, right? Mm, Come on. Yeah. Good call. Bringing it back, making it relevant. Uh, and there's a lot of male dialogue. Yes, so yes. that happens. Uh, Catherine is eventually invited to visit the titular, titular Northanger Abbey, mm-hmm. the family seat of the Tilneys. And she even harbours hopes of marrying the younger son, Henry. But the meddling of the Thorpes and Catherine's own imagination might just be the undoing of her dot, dot, dot. Oh, so good. You should put mm. that on uh, put that on the back cover. I like it. What do you think? Including the five hundred days of summer bit? I think if you like this one bit from five hundred days of summer, then you'll <laughs> love this eighteenth century novel about a different thing. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Great. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Done. So we're gonna get back to this discussion of Northanger Abbey after our interview with our very special guest today. Janine Barkas is a professor of English literature at the University of Texas in Austin. She is currently a fellow of the American Council of Learned Societies. She serves as the president for the North American Friends of Chottenhouse. Aw, we love Chottenhouse here. And she is the author of Matters of Fact in Jane Austen and the recently published The Lost Books of Jane Austen, which is fantastic. Great book. And a lot of you guys have been talking about it since... Uh, since Janine did her guest talk at the 2019 JASNA conference. Great book. And I got to say, Sam loves that cover. <laughs> Great cover. Great cover. He could not stop talking about it when it arrived. <laughs> he was like, oh, what's this book? I like this book. This book looks very interesting. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I hope this is the only Austin book Sam reads. Yeah. I mean, judge yeah. the book by its cover. It's a great book. What are your personal feelings about Northanger Abbey? How do you, where does it rank? How do you like it? Northanger Abbey is my favorite. <gasps> it is? And I think it's my favorite because it taught me to read all the others. Mm-hmm. So it's the the one that, because it's kind of the unsung sung underdog, um, it was one that I read with very little expectations mm-hmm. and found all sorts of details in the book that I thought, why are they there? Mm-hmm. And 
that's what started me thinking about the details in the other books. Austin is um, sort of where to start. Virginia Woolf once said that Jane Austen, of all the great writers, is the one that is most difficult to catch in the act of greatness. Mm-hmm. And I think that in Northanger Abbey, you can catch her in the act of greatness more easily. And uh, that is because the sort of maybe the glassy realism uh, that is sort of her own understated approach to her work. She has a kind of strategy of self-effacement in the novels, mm-hmm. Austen does. And it's not yet completely glassy. There's still a few ripples. And in Northanger Abbey, there were details that seemed redundant. Why does John Thorpe describe how fast his carriage went? Why doesn't he just brag that it goes 10 miles an hour? Why do we need to go into a long conversation about where they started, where they ended up, how many miles it did or did not go, and etc. And I ended up following those clues and finding that Austin is so geographically specific that she charts everything and stopwatches, if you will, everything. She is a consummate name dropper Mm -hmm. so that all her names end up and street names, uh, names she borrows for her characters that she gives to them are all realistic in 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 a way that demands a kind of close reading and for somebody uh, who is an English professor who loves close reading and who started with Joyce and ended up with Jane Austen it 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 became a game and so Northanger Abbey is my favorite personally because it taught me kind of the rules of the game I I love what you're saying about it being like a game because I'm doing a very close a very slow reading of Northanger Abbey right now and I'm just way to read it. To that is, I think the best. I think uh, every other time I've sort of glossed over, you know, John Thorpe just talking about traffic and horses and his carriage. But now I'm really just well, trying to pay, <laughs> just like paying attention. I'm also highlighting everything that she's like trying to highlight the names that she's dropping and the books that she's referencing, which is a lot. Yeah. No, I, I think that it Northanger Abbey forces you to slow down. Uh, maybe because, you know, that that glassy realism of that opening in, in, in Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. that just sort of starts in Medias Race in the middle of the thing. And, and Mrs. Bennett just kind of, it's her persona that opens uh, the story. It just ta- pulls you along and you don't have mm-hmm. to do any work and everything seems so easy. Mm-hmm. And so you don't ask those questions up front. So, yeah, I think Northanger Abbey is is a good, slow read for all the right reasons. Any, like, standout favorite scenes for you? The, you know, the John Thorpe's description of his pimped out gig <laughs> is, is one that definitely <laughs> always has me giggling uh, and thinking, gosh, Jane Austen growing in a up in a household filled with these young men, you know, all her yeah. brothers must have really been attentively listening to the the braggadocios in, in you know, who came a visiting or who were talked about or maybe who were in the family. I love that you make all those, you know, sort of connections between Austin's work and like historical events and politicians or celebrities. Um, can you tell me about some of those connections that you were seeing in Northanger Abbey? Um, sure, I'd love to, you know, travel that uh, material again. Um, so Northanger Abbey starts with a case of mistaken identity, which is, of course, what you would expect mm-hmm. from a novel that spoofs the Gothic, and uh, that's how we talk about it. And the the case of mistaken identity is that Catherine Moreland, an unassuming girl from the countryside, who is being escorted by these even more unassuming Allens, these this Mr. and Mrs. Allen from the country, uh, to Bath, is mistaken for a great heiress, and the mistake seems to be not in her name or how she interacts or what she wears or anything she says, but the fact that she is escorted to Bath by these Allens, by Mr. and Mrs. Allen. And it is assumed that because she is with a Mr. and Mrs. Allen, somehow John Thorpe and even the sort of seasoned General Tilney, um, they all assume 
that Mr. Allen must be giving her his money and that somehow she's going to be very rich. And that assumption had legs during the time that Jane Austen was writing this novel. Her sister points to 1798-1799 as the time of composition of Northanger Abbey. So we all know that it was composed in the late 90s and probably tweaked a bit long before it was attempted to be sold and sold um, to a Bath publisher in 1803. We all know it was never actually published until after Jane Austen died, her brother Henry having bought it back in, what is it, 1816 uh, on her behalf. Uh, it was originally called uh, Susan, and then maybe a novel in the interim had been published with that same name, uh, and that was maybe the catalyst for for renaming the heroine Catherine and, and then renaming it after her death to Northanger Abbey. So the publishing history all points to sort of the, the, the real genesis being before 1803, so long before any of the other novels, and that this really is her first work, her first finished uh, work. And at that time, the great Allen fortune in the city of Bath, which was amassed by a man named Ralph Allen, who was an entrepreneur, philanthropist. Uh, he ran the post office uh, near Bath. He farmed what was called the cross post so that mail wouldn't have to go to London, um, but could actually from Bath go to Bath, whereas before all the mail, all the post had to be sent uh, to London, like a, a big FedEx hub or something. Mm -hmm. um, so Ralph Allen made this huge fortune, and long story short, um, he his celebrity was huge. It was national celebrity, so we're not talking about a local celebrity, but someone everyone knew. And that great fortune passed during 1798-99 into the hands of a distant cousins of the Allens, also named Allen, living in the countryside that no one had ever seen. And that everyone had lost sight of as the great Allen, Mr. Allen's fortune traveled to a niece and then to her uh, 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 young, her son who died. And it's just, just this legacy um, that in at just the time that Jane Austen was writing, everyone was Allen spotting at the assembly rooms. And she's writing a novel about Bath and a visitor to Bath who uh, is arm in arm with, with a Mr. and Mrs. Allen. No wonder she uh, is mistaken for a great heiress. And so this story kind of represents this background, represents the, the or represent is, is part of the heavy duty realism of this particular story, where every street name, every corner turned in John Thorpe's carriage with Catherine in it, when he says, so, Mr. Allen, he's as rich as a Jew, right? Mm -hmm. They are edging their way along Prior Park. They are right next to the great Allen estate. And John Thorpe is trying to fish for information and trying to figure out how he can kind of loosen Catherine's tongue about Mr. Allen and get this confirmation that they are the Allens everyone's looking for. Um, so, yeah, that's an example of that real-life inspiration. And once I was on the trail of that and put Alan and Alan together, which is such a common surname, uh, of course, we wouldn't think of that now as significant. Right. But at the time, everyone was Alan spotting. So this this would have been at the forefront, I think, of her story and would have been sort of a little giggle that starts the story and makes John Thorpe more oafish right. and General Tilney sort of more Pavlovian in his response to that name. You've written a lot about my, my favorite, Blaze Castle and mm -hmm. um, Farley Hungerford Castle, which I'm like obsessed with both. <laughs> well, um, definitely on your next trip, a visit to Farley Hungerford is mm -hmm. um, is warranted. But Bla so Blaze Castle is the castle that uh, John Thorpe promises to take Catherine to. And there's a set of mistakes and awkwardnesses, and she ends up in his carriage. And he says, well, you know, I'm taking you to Blaze Castle. It's worth, you know, going 50 miles to see. And she says, Blaze Castle. So it's a real castle with like real galleries and real. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And he's bragging about how Blaze is this 
the real deal, the real gothic thing that she's interested in. And of course, Blaise Castle, as everyone would have known nationally, and certainly in and around Bath, uh, where Austen tried to publish this in 1803. Um, Blaise Castle is like a Disneyland garden room. <laughs> it's like a yeah. fake thing that was made. It's a folly. Mm-hmm. It was made in the 18th century, very, it's, it's a very recent kind of building at the time that is a, yeah, it's a garden room, it's a folly, it's a facade that is a castle in name only, and in fact is a very recent structure. And what was, what's so brilliant about the puzzle and the fun of the story is that Ralph Allen was famous for building a castle that you can see from uh, on the hill from the very address where John picks Cath- John Thorpe picks Catherine Morland up to start their journey north uh, towards Blaise Castle, which is very close to Bristol. It's in that direction. And it is indeed, I think it's not 15 miles away, but it's at least 20 miles away from Bath. So it's it's an insane destination to set out in uh, a, a gig uh, to reach on a, for a day's outing. It's it's insane. And in fact, they don't get there. They they go about, uh, according to the text, which is very specific, they see the town of Kensham and they go seven, just over seven miles. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's... It's just wonderful, and and it adds to the inanity of John Thorpe's voyage. That when the moment he picks her up, a identical folly is there for all of Bath to see, right at her front door, and they literally turn their back towards that as they head north and leave uh, the sham castle. It was called that was built by Ralph Allen when the Gothic bad to start it up. It's so funny. I'm thinking too about the first time I read Northanger Abbey and how like upset I was that they didn't go to Blaze Castle. <laughs> how sweet. I was like, I want to see the it. Catherine. I totally was. And so, she, yeah, but she's like that. She is that kind of audience. And she doesn't realize that where she's being taken, she's already there. She could just yeah. turn around and see it <laughs> and not miss her date with uh, Miss Tilney. So, um, yeah, that's that's a beauty of it. But that same story then led me to Farley Hungerford Castle when I asked myself, sort of like, wouldn't it be great? Since we're yet told rather redundantly, because we know where they're going and how many hours they go and that the weather is bad and it's too, roads are muddy and then they see uh, the town of Kensham and we get told they traveled a little over seven miles. And I thought, okay, so they're going in this direction, sort of northwest. And... If they went the opposite direction and traveled that same distance, what would they reach? Wouldn't it be cool if there turned out to be a real castle right there? Mm-hmm. And one swivel of the compass point in that direction, and I found that Farley Hungerford Castle was the destination station in Jane Austen's time, for especially the 1790s, for anyone interested in the Gothic and in ruined castles, real castles that had been there since well before Henry VIII privatized them. And that's Farley Hungerford Castle, one of the the tourist destinations that Austen must have known about. It was written up rather brilliantly in a book that her family owned, A Guide to Bath, by a guy named uh, Reverend, I think, William Richard Warner, who... Um, uh, I, I forget what the name of it uh, is, but something about Bath's environs. And it, it was owned by them and has her name in it and has wonderful descriptions of all the Gothic fantasies that would be fulfilled by a visit to Farley Hungerford Castle. It, it, when Catherine says, is it this, is it that, Farley Hungerford should have been their destination that day. And instead he right. he heads in exactly the opposite direction, like some sort of cartoonish clown. He just goes <laughs> the wrong way. And I think it adds to the scene that it's not random, that mm-hmm. she has these alternative destinations in mind. And there was a famous Mac, map maker named Mr. Thorpe. So maps are already in play, perhaps. Um, and Farley Hungerford Castle's story then maps, pun intended, um, 
exactly onto the fantasy that Catherine has when she arrives at Northanger Abbey. So I think that even when she goes to Northanger, we kind of stay with the the history of Bath and its locations. It is still, um, it's a heritage site, and you can still visit it. And on the audio tour, they play the stories that Jane Austen must have known, and that certainly are in Catherine's head, those fantasies of, uh, you know, people being you know, dying in castles. There was a, a one Hungerford wife who murdered uh, her husband to marry uh, uh, one of the, the, the lords of the manor, the Edward Hungerford. And she got two servants to kill her, uh, her I think it was the steward at the time, to kill her husband uh, so she could be free to marry the lord of the manor um, and burn up his body in the kitchen ovens. Uh, so that's one legend. Another one is that there was a kind of bluebeard hung, at Hungerford Castle who went through three wives in quick succession who all seemed to die. And his third wife, this is during the time of Henry VIII, ended up writing the king, Henry, uh, and pleading for help, asking that um, you know she be released from the tower that she was being kept in, that she was uh, being poisoned by her husband, and that he had designs on her fortune and wanted to, uh, you know, etc. She was forced to drink her own urine uh, and uh, forced to uh, have the foods delivered to her by uh, people from the village who were kind enough to try and keep her alive in that tower. So the, one of the towers at Hungerford Castle, one of the ruined towers, is called the Lady Tower to mark uh, that wife uh, who survived. Henry VIII decided oh, that. Oh, good. Yeah. She I wasn't sure if Henry would pull through. No, Henry didn't. He, Henry pulled through. Uh, he ignored the letter only in the sense that he ended up killing uh, Hungerford, uh, you know, mm. the husband, uh, for... Uh, for reasons, uh, you know, he became a nuisance and so off with his head. Um, But that left her free. And miraculously, she married again, which I found the strangest part of the story. Yeah, really? (laughs) But she did. Wow. So yeah, all of these kinds of stories, these fantasies that Catherine has of General Tilney locking up his wife and maybe poisoning her and killing her and all these things that when... Um, Henry Tilney at the end of the story does that whole mansplaining scene uh, telling mm-hmm. Catherine that you know she's ridiculous she should come to her senses this doesn't happen in England if she could just think about mm-hmm. you know history of England and how English people don't behave that way she would recognize how silly she is and she of course feels truly chastened and runs off crying but as a reader we should be laughing along with the novel, because those are exactly the things that turned out to have happened in the city of Bath. Um, What are your feelings on uh, Henry Tilney? We're really back and forth on him over here. I don't have any feelings on Henry Tilney. (laughs) Does that keep me in a neutral position? It does. It does. It's hard. I just keep rereading that scene where they go on the walk. I'm like, what's going on with Henry? I'm not sure yet. I think Henry is a bit of a mansplainer and, um, you know, that that we forgive him that in the end because he sees Mm -hmm. Catherine's true qualities. But he is certainly not, uh, in spite of his knowledge of muslin, he is not without flaws. It's true. He's a lot. He's he's a little extra, I think, maybe, is his thing. <laughs> yes, but with, yes. you know, with a uh, no mother and a father like General Tilney, it's a miracle he uh, he came out uh, as, uh, as well as he did. That is a fair point, honestly. That is true. And yeah. And, and he's nice and to his yeah, sister. And yeah. So yeah. 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 No, he's got he's got stuff going on yeah. for him. He does. He does. Now, you've got a new book out, The Lost Books of Jane Austen. So what led you down that path? Um, It was, um, one doesn't realize sometimes that one is on a path until a Mm -hmm. number of things have come into alignment. So it wasn't necessarily one thing, but the first lost book, if you will, that um, I, I don't know if discovered is the right word, but that I came across was um, a copy 
of published by Lever Brothers of Sense and Sensibility. So it had Lever Brothers in the imprint on the title page. And it looked to be around, you know, a Victorian copy. And it wasn't anywhere in the bibliography. I couldn't get any information on it. So it didn't really exist. And it seemed so silly that a soap company would have published Jane Austen. And my research into what turned out to be a giveaway in sort of the first ooh, collect soap wrappers and turn it into a book and trade it for these titles, the first sort of Jane Austen giveaway in what turned out to be the 1890s, that that was an example of many instances where the bibliographies just don't record certain books because they're not important editions. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what started this project. The last books of Jane Austen are not, you know, novels that she might, might have written that's, that I found in my attic. Now, these are the copies that had the most readers, that had the lowest prices, those things always go together, and that have had the lowest or sometimes none, recognition of scholars because they don't end up in rare books libraries. These are the books that are truly lost because no one ever bothered to save them or collect them. And mm -hmm. these are the editions of Jane Austen that turned out did all the heavy lifting of bringing her into the canon and raising her up and making her the celebrity Jane we know now. And yet these are the books that we don't seem to have respected enough to save because they're cheap. Right. And they're kind of, you know, um, unforgivable cheapness has made them not collected by libraries and not recorded by bibliographers. So mm -hmm. this became a project where I simply tried to find what I didn't know how I could look for because there was no guide. And right. I, um, how so, did you go about this? Yeah. Well, first of all, I have tenure and I'm a full professor so that mm -hmm. this is this would have been a foolish project to start. And as I said before, I didn't know I was writing a book about this until I had already amassed dozens of them. I wasn't really paying attention. I thought this was just sort of a, a lark, a kind of hobby. Ooh, here's another one that I can't find in the bibliography for $5 on eBay. Let's go purchase it. And it became kind of a... Um, yeah, a sideline that I wasn't taking seriously until I met um, and a number of private collectors, one of whom had been collecting Jane Austen for 40 years. She uh, knew that I was working on Jane Austen and invited me to see her book collection with some wonderful first editions. And so I visited her in her home and she took me to this special room where she keeps all her Jane Austen materials and started proudly showing me these, you know, these American firsts that she had. And I lasted less than 12 minutes, I think, before I said, okay, this is really great, but it's kind of wasted on me because I see out of the corner of my eye this shelf over here with all these wonderful books that... And we ended up for days talking about these lowly books that she had um, gathered. Okay, so for, for days... Um, we ended up talking about not the first, the precious first editions, not these precious, mm -hmm. you know, first translations or first illustrated editions, but these kind of crap, these wonderfully crappy books that mm -hmm. uh, she had collected kind of on her way to hoping for, um, to find another first. And uh, these were you know, she hadn't paid attention to these either. But when we started putting hers together with um, some of the other collectors uh, who offered me access um, and with the things that I had amassed, I realized then and only then that this was much bigger. That there, And this was the big surprise for me that there were hundreds of these books, dozens and dozens and dozens that, that didn't appear in bibliographies. And yet they clearly showed evidence of being read and if they were being read and they had been saved they must have been valued and passed on and they often had ownership signatures in them that was a big surprise um, mm -hmm. that I was able to then you know trace some of those using you know the the eye of Sauron that is Google and 
the um, sort of ancestry.com angle that allows you in a very short space of time to know whether or not you have enough information to trace a specific person, whether or not you can triangulate their location and the, and a date and their name, if it's unique enough to a specific uh, reader. So suddenly the 19th century reader that we all talk about and gesture to in this kind of generic way started becoming very real to me first because of the books looking very different there were there were tawdry janes and there were penny janes and six penny janes and there were cheap janes and religious janes and pop culture janes and there there were all these different ways of presenting jane austen and interacting with her um, through these these books that people had read and then there were these real readers to talk about people with names mm-hmm. that had real lives. So that's what this project is about. It's kind of, it's about lost readers uh, and neglected books. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's about readers as much as it is about books. Now, did you find yourself, I'm sure you you picked up a few editions like along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, afraid so. You find yourself like on eBay. Is there one that's like a particular favorite? Um. Oh, you know, they're they're all favorites. They're they're it's it's interesting that that um of course I have favorites. Uh I'm not sitting next to my pile at the moment. Um mm-hmm. and they're favorites because the stories that unfolded about them that you know that this lever soap edition, this this whole this way of thinking about how Austin was part of this soap circus and this giveaway right. scheme and the accumulation of soap wrappers and teen, you had to be under 17 in order to trade them in and you could get bicycles or watches or books. And then there was this long list of over a hundred titles and Jane Austen was on that list in terms of sense and sensibility and pride and prejudice. And then I guess sort of my favorites are the ones where you can see um, stereotype plates. Those, so the way these books are made is using a technology that means you can sort of short do do a shortcut to setting type uh, and cast uh, that set type into plates that can be reused over and over and over again. And you can make very small batches of books so that storage uh, costs are lower and your initial investment as a publisher is smaller. And so these books become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And in the 19th century, I guess my favorites are the cheapest ones, you know, I, the, mm-hmm. the penny editions and the six, the, the, the ones that are now, yeah, they've disappeared in paper drives for World War One and World War Two. These were the first to go. These would have been mm-hmm. books on cheap paper. Right. And the, the survivors are so rare that, you know, the one six penny edition that I have is my, of Sense and Sensibility, is my favorite mm-hmm. Because it is so incredibly rare, far rarer now than those precious first editions that everyone has recognized were worth saving from the very beginning. That's very interesting, actually. Now I'm regretting. I, I almost picked up, um, I was at Second Shelf Books mm-hmm. in London. I don't know if you, and uh, there was a Northanger Abbey there. And it was uh, it was like a school reader. Yes. Yeah. Copy. And it was so marked up inside and had so many cute little notes. And I mean, and I you didn't like, get I that. I, I know. I, <laughs> oh my God. I know. I've been thinking about it. That <laughs> was a I, bad When I got decision. your book, too, I was looking through. I was like, why did I get that copy of Northanger Abbey? Um, those are precisely the kinds of copies that, you know, that this book and that the process of the research just savored the idea that you mm-hmm. could. You know you, that school editions were were read, and I could trace some of some of the names. The I guess my favorite, my own favorite Northanger Abbey copy, although I have many favorites, is is the one that uh, belonged to a young girl named Annie Monroe. It's a Blackie and Sons edition from uh, a publisher in Glasgow who did a lot of juvenile printings, and this has a kind of uh, uh, Art Nouveau kind of um, cover on it, very bright, and I thought it was really pretty, and it had a book plate in it from 
a school in Forfar, Scotland, that said that it was an attendance prize to Annie Monroe for 19, you know, that was for 1910-11. So it was given to her in 1911 at the end of the school year. And I thought, oh, how sweet to think of all these kids with these bright books that they're given at the end of the year as prizes, and then they go off to their summer holiday and read North Angarabi. Um, but then I discovered that I could find Annie Monroe because she had seemed mm-hmm. to have gifted the book to her sister Florence, Florence Monroe, and their address on Market Street in Forfar, Scotland, was written down. And so I could oh find goodness. 14 Market Street, and I found, and I have the date because 1911, and she was gifted this. So I was able to find in the census of that year um, I was able to find the family and discover that they live in this tiny little house that I could still see on Google um, with six daughters uh, and these two working class uh, heads of the family. Uh, and I was able to kind of see their life and recognize that this book must have been a glorious prize to a working class mm-hmm. daughter um, in that kind of bracket, economic bracket. And then I also discovered, uh, very sadly, and I cried, um, the the record of her death from diphtheria six months later in hospital, followed oh, no. very quickly a few weeks later by her, one of her younger sisters, Annie, uh, and that Annie Monroe had died at the age of 13, and that probably she had gifted this copy in this sort of shaky handwriting to her sister as mm-hmm. almost like a dying gesture. It wasn't part of this barter economy that I thought, oh, one sister got a book and she wanted something mm-hmm. else and they traded. And so she gave it to Florence. You know, I, I have siblings. We did a lot of trading of toys when we were younger. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't like that at all. And so suddenly this research wasn't academic anymore, if you will. Mm-hmm. It suddenly involved real readers who had real stories that suggested that Jane Austen was part of something not generic, but something that real readers with real gritty lives, whose copies of Austen were were part of a kind of gritty reality that wasn't reflected in the way that we talk about her in these pretty books, the way that we talk about her in these fine editions. That is, um, that's so perfect, because I think I think back to like season one of this podcast, I used to ask people like just as a side, just kind of like to just get started. What's your favorite Austin? Like, how do you rank them? Whatnot. And the stories that we would get too that were not part of the interview, not part of like what we were even trying to do were very personal. And um, I feel that way with like with Austin and with the Brontes for sure, you know, like we see these really, really personal connections. And Sense and Sensibility was one that was, um, that I, I've heard quite a lot. And it is very like sister. It's like, it reminds me of my sister. Or I, we actually had someone on the show who um, was gifted Sense and Sensibility by their uh, sister who died as a child. And like, it has very, very personal connections. Yeah. And I, th- I think that with, with many great books, people read, oh, dare I say this, but we all read narcissistically. We read yes. um, for that feeling of empathy and for for recognizing something. And I always tell my students that, you know, that they should be more humble before these books. These books are not about them. And that mm-hmm. the these books are not written for them personally. And that we should try to kind of get back to the moment in which they were created. And that, uh, that this is not not about narcissism but of course mm-hmm. it is it is a way in to we don't love something unless there's a little bit of ourselves in it and i agree with you that uh, austin in particular seems to solicit that kind of i don't know the best kind of narcissism if there is such a thing uh, when it comes to loving books and understanding the the process of empathy uh, that ultimately that solicits and maybe it begins as a kind of self-love you recognize your brother or your sister or yourself in these characters but hopefully it, it leads to a a wider empathy because you know that's what great literature is about it's about understanding experiences of others so you don't have to live them 
And we are back. So Northanger Abbey is one of the shorter books that we've tackled for a read-along. But we are going to take our time with this one. We are reading it slowly. And the reason for that is that this book can read super fast. So it's Mm -hmm. also super easy to just gloss over all of those textual references and important details. Especially when it's something that you don't recognize as well. Like you definitely, I mean, I've told the story about not reading any of the historical appendix or like the hidden book in 1984. Like I love glossing over stuff I don't understand. That's my jam. (laughs) Just skipping straight past it. So a lot happens in these first eight chapters. Like we're introduced to Catherine. Before we know it, she's off to Bath. She's with the Allens at her first ball. She meets Henry in chapter three. I forgot we like meet him super quick. Yeah, right? quite early. Yeah. <laughs> and then he disappears for a while and we're left pining for him, which I actually really quite like um, as well. And then um, Catherine and Mrs. Allen are like vulnerable and alone and they don't really know anyone. And the Thorps enter. So that's like chapters one through eight in a nutshell, basically. <laughs> But Hannah, are there any like small details, new things that you've picked up on this reading that you'd like to discuss? Um, So I will say I'm definitely guilty of kind of reading Northanger Abbey really fast. I've already finished it. Uh, I'm not doing it (laughs) chapter by chapter. I took that and a book. I went to Amsterdam for my birthday and I took two books with me and I was going to read the other one and then just read Northanger Abbey up to chapter eight and I ended up Mm -hmm. just reading the whole thing because it's a great book it's so funny it's so easy to read and I just ignore all of the stuff I don't get right so (laughs) I did it surprise surprise I'm coming in with like a surface level analysis but what was really interesting and eye-opening was your interview with Janine so when I listened to that there were some things which I was like oh shit okay (laughs) And definitely, I think it made me think about stuff that I took for granted the first time I read it because I didn't know that I was looking for certain things. And then I didn't even realise the second time that my information was different. Mm -hmm. So first off, the Alan stuff about like the name, mic drop and a half. And what I liked about it is that it does explain the motivations and the misunderstandings of some of the characters, the Thorps. But also it's not... It's not, it's played like quite discreetly because in the first eight chapters, nothing's really happened with that. People aren't responding to them differently. Like they go to the ball. Nobody treats them any differently. Nobody is fawning over her. I mean, Mm -hmm. like these Allens are nobody. Like no one gives a shit who they are. And I like that because it's, it is an Easter egg. And it's, yeah, it's just one of those little things. And I think that's why it's something that you can gloss over, right? Mm -hmm. Because- she she makes it so easy like Austin doesn't she's it's not like overwrought she's not like look how clever I am I've done this she just right. puts it in and if you pick it up then good for you but if you don't you can still read the book mm-hmm. and totally. I love like I love that and then the other thing uh so in the rereading and then the interview I think what was insane to me was just like how local Northanger Abbey is to me like growing up and living in Bristol as I do Blaze Castle is down the road. I have been to Blaze Castle many times, <laughs> but I hadn't the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't remember, but the first time I read it, I must have just thought it was a castle. Right. And so this time, this time I read it and it's not because of any annotations or anything, but this time I read it and I was like, oh my God, Blaze Castle, that's so funny. Mm-hmm. And like, I got the joke because I've been, Blaze Castle isn't impressive, it's a folly. Um, and it and it still happens to people. It's like, oh, do you want to go to Blaze Castle for a walk? And then you go and you're like, oh, okay. Oh, this is nope. so like, disappointing. I love castles. Very much on Catherine's side. Nobody managed my expectations. She is lucky that it didn't happen to her. Right. Um, and then the other thing, Farley Hungerford. So, little claim to fame. My reenactment group actually reenacts the household of Sir Thomas Hungerford. And so Farley Hungerford is their family seat and we were given permission from his ancestors 
in person. They arrived in a helicopter to like what? Give the group permission to reenact him. <laughs> so that's so ridiculous. That's so funny. I've never been, so I think Lauren, we should go because we that would should be go. like a great day out. Yeah, I think we should go. That. Oh my god! Yeah, How I was have like, you not what? told me that. <laughs> it's also like the coolest castle. Lauren, one day I will take you to Corfe Castle and you will learn all about the British Civil War and you will take that back because that is the coolest castle. That's the coolest. Let me tell you. That's the one. And the bitches that ran it. Yes. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Love Corfe Castle. This is just a podcast about castles, by the way. I wish it was. My Favourite Castle, a podcast by Hannah Chapman. Um, And then the other thing is Canesham. Mm Mm-hmm. Is where my cousins live, and we very nearly live there, so we go to Canesham all the time too, just down the road. Wow. What can I say? What can I say? Northanger Abbey is my jam. It really so, is. So yeah, and then obviously, you know, I lived in Bath, so ticked it all off. Mm-hmm. Got it all. Been to all the places, got all the t-shirts. So then the other thing, I guess, that I feel like this isn't a realisation or anything, but every time I read a Jane Austen book... I am just blown away by her writing mm-hmm. and by her dialogue. She is the master of dialogue. Uh, doesn't matter how it's reported, like whether or not it's direct dialogue or if it's reported dialogue. Just mm-hmm. everything is brilliant. And I think Northanger Abbey has people just giving the most fantastic speeches. Mm-hmm. And the thing with Northanger Abbey is that people constantly talk and more than in any of her other books, no one says anything. Yeah. The entire novel. No one's no one has anything to say. It's insane how much text is dedicated to people chatting shit. Well, and that's in a way, what's like, like really funny about Catherine though, right? Because she's like because she's so dim, she's like, wait, what are you saying? Yeah, <laughs> but also it's on? like she's and the, they still she's the stupid one, right? right. Bunny is mm-hmm. the stupid one. But she's like, oh, She's the only person who doesn't speak when she doesn't have anything to say, who can't. Truth. Right? And that's yeah. smart. Yeah. She's the only one that does it. Truth. So there you go. It's a little Catherine insight. Just had one live on air. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> I think the fact that people don't say anything tells us everything about the book. So people are constantly saying things for the sake of saying something, Mrs. Allen. Or they're saying something pleasant so they don't cause offence. Catherine, just contradicted my own insight. (laughs) Or they're saying something stupid and they don't care a fig about whether or not they're right or wrong. Who's that, Lauren? Oh, I don't know. Some guy named John Thorpe, maybe? My boy JT. Or they're saying something that's silly and playful and they're flirting and it's just kind of nonsense and then their sister's calling them out on it. Who's that? That would be Mr. Henry Tilney. Henry Tilney. And more than anything, this time around, I was struck with how much the men talk. Mm -hmm. Chunks, chunks of text, half a page. It's not just John Thorpe. John Thorpe doesn't talk any more than either General Tilney or Henry Tilney. Mm -hmm. We should count. We should count the words per speech because there are so many occasions and i am jumping ahead but there are so many occasion occasions where both of the tilneys just they just chat for such a long time and it isn't always told you know like there's loads of scenes coming up where it's just catherine not saying anything and it's just henry is just talking at her mm-hmm. you know and well, he's like mansplaining but i think I think I don't know so much that it's like Henry is mansplaining. I think that Austin is doing something with male dialogue because they're mm-hmm. all doing it in a very different way. And yeah. we'll talk about the general when he comes up. But like the men, they just don't stop. And the only ones that don't really do it are Mr. Allen, who is only ever portrayed as being sensible. Mm-hmm. Mr. Morland, who is like... Barely there. Barely there, but also again, a practical, straightforward, no-nonsense man. And James, who just, I mean, he's a wetty. Yeah. What's going on with James? I believe that was a question in our Facebook group this week. And I don't know. I think James is quite realistic. I mean, that whole, do you remember when we were reading Villette and I scrolled into my book, like, why do men insist on loving stupid women? (laughs) And 
just everything because you were channeling his, yeah it's Bronte just that, that moment. you know like james james is every guy who has preferred a, another girl that isn't you and you're sat there going i just why her James. She doesn't even like, she doesn't even like ball games. She's just pretending. <laughs> I said in the Facebook group that I thought that John, I agreed that John Thorpe was a caricature. And the more I think about it, the more I think that none of these people are caricatures. They're just the mm-hmm. worst. They are the worst examples yeah. of it. They are very real. They are just the worst examples. I don't think there's anyone who would think, oh, I hope people think of me like that. They are our worst selves reflected back to us we're all guilty of doing it mm-hmm. well maybe maybe just me i definitely <laughs> am like yeah it's you know and i i don't know if that's maybe why i love john thorpe so much because it's not like i don't love his behavior i'm not pro john thorpe anytime i defend him you know it's mostly tongue-in-cheek and just trying to annoy you and right. everyone that listens to the show but <laughs> you know, I, I actually don't think he does anything anywhere near as bad as like Willoughby. I think he's right. He's, right. he's an idiot. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm going to talk about him some more. Like, I love Tony. This is actually a whole episode about <laughs> John Thorpe and John Thorpe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I do love Tony. Mansplainy characteristics aside, if you know, if that's what you think is going on, which I'm on the fence about, you mm-hmm. know, I, I teeter on that. I can't tell. But I, I think John Thorpe just has my heart in this book because Austin just, she went in all guns blazing from the minute he arrives on the page in that gig. Isabella cursing the gigs. She's like, I can't believe all these carriages around here. And she goes, oh, how nice. It's my brother. She's so angry. And then she changes immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love reading and rereading these chapters and our first introduction to him because he's not an empty vessel and that's the thing that yeah i know that you say a lot about like austin's men that i think is on point with people like mr darcy but you can't say it about john thorpe because mm-hmm. he's got character he's got plot and he's got motive you understand why and even when you get to the end and everything's revealed and like why he's been doing stuff everything makes sense and everything he yeah. has said makes sense you know i mean and so funny his speeches are so brilliantly funny he's meant to be this like buffoon blackguard empty-headed boy man more than he is meant to be a sexual predator so i think it's okay to just enjoy jt oh wow just enjoy so let's talk about my favorite john thorpe moment oh let in this set of this set of chapters yes. Chapter seven. Pull out your book, Hannah. I got it. Oh, you I have? can show you how much of his speech I've underlined. Uh, all of it. I've left mine upstairs. Um, so it's a scene where John and Catherine are in the gig and they are talking about books. And um, by the way, in case you guys are unclear, like Northanger Abbey is a book about books. And if you took a shot, like every time someone mentions a book or an author or like defends the novel you'd be done in from alcohol poisoning because that is like, I feel like the entire point of this book. And that's the thing I I actually love most, to be honest. So Catherine is like, hey, John, have you ever read this Udolfo book? And surprise, surprise, he's just like super dismissive of all books written by women. Yeah. (laughs) And um, he speaks with a lot of authority on Mm -hmm. this. And he knows he has no idea what he's talking about. Like he doesn't even know that Udolpho was written by Anne Radcliffe. He's like, that's garbage. I mean, I've read the books by Mrs. Radcliffe. Those are great. Yeah, and she's yeah. like, it is written by <laughs> Mrs. Radcliffe. And he's like, yeah, whatever. I mean, it's garbage. But um, and he's like, also, Francis Bernie's Camilla, that's a stupid book. And he says, I quote, I took up the first volume once and looked it over, but I soon found it was not it would not do. Indeed, I guessed what sort of stuff it must be before I saw it. I guessed. He hasn't even seen it. I don't even believe, I don't believe he even picked up the volume. I do. You know why? Because I believe he's looked like for sexy pictures of ladies in it. (laughs) I think that's what he's done. He's seen it. He's gone like, are there any pictures of women in this book? There are not. It's bullshit. He read like a paragraph and he's like, no, this is this is garbage. Nonsense. 
But I think that's really the point, right? Like that Austin yeah. is like talking out people that do this, that just like pick up a book, make a really like offhand judgment based off of like one paragraph or the cover or a picture or just oh my whatever God, nonsense like, detail. Like people do of Jane Austen novels. It's <gasps> shocking, isn't it? Yeah. And I still never know what to say to them when they... I know. I'm just like, oh, that's a shame you don't like her, I guess. Just Bye. a bunch of John Thorpes <laughs> right there. Um, and I like that Austin actually takes this further because it's not just that like John Thorpe is a non-reading buffoon, right? Mm-hmm. Like she really does specify that like he's saying things like, you know, all these novels, they're totally far-fetched. They're all full of nonsense, except, oh, you know what? Tom Jones by Henry Fielding is good. And The Monk by Matthew Lewis, that's a great book which is hilarious because that's a crazy book. <laughs> Total nonsense book, which we will discuss later on in this series. Um, whereas Udolfo, long and rambling and very difficult to read as it is, which I'm trying again right now. Ultimately, the message, the story of Udolfo is about a man scheming to gain control of the fortune of a vulnerable young woman which is what's happening in Northanger Abbey at this very moment, like in that gig. Yeah. So that levels, levels. I think that's like my favorite moment. And well, definitely in this <laughs> set of chapters. Yeah, it's like it reveals something, doesn't it? Yes. I think that's hilarious. I'm sorry. It just like blew my mind. I was like, awesome. <laughs> that's very skillful. But in order for that, like for you to appreciate that, you really do have to understand like, those books and what they're about. So I think that's the hard thing about Northanger Abbey, right? You can gloss over that whole moment in the gig and just think, oh, he's kind of an idiot, like whatever, but you're also like, yeah. Oh, oh, well, you're missing he's this the key. Thing. He's the whole story. Really, if you just unlock the mind of John Thorpe, then you mm-hmm. unlock Northanger Abbey. I wish I could get into the mind of John Thorpe. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And in the most recent adaptation, great hat. That was a good hat. So one of the things that I would just like to point out real quick is that um, both John and Catherine are guilty of misreading or not fully like comprehending information, which I think is another like just key point in Northanger Abbey. It happens with quite a few people, obviously, most famously with Catherine. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, but there's a lot of people who are not great with nuance or subtext i mean the narrator tells us straight away with Catherine, like she's this gal who's the middle of 10 children she has more or less been left to her own devices she's kind of like rough and tumble and outdoorsy and she's been raised on books that are quote unquote all story no reflection yeah so i think that's really something that's important to just keep in the back of your mind while reading um but i do want to say like in defense of Catherine. She doesn't have a formal education. Um, you know, she hasn't been raised reading like these conduct books. She doesn't really know how a woman's supposed to behave like Isabella, right? Like, mm-hmm. whereas John has like all of this education and opportunity and he's at Oxford, correct? Yeah. 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 So That's how I they mean, know each other. So, I mean, like, maybe we should give John a harder time. That's all I'm saying. Just think about it, guys. <laughs> just think about it. I think also just with uh, with the Isabella thing as well, like Isabella's obviously, uh, she comes across as someone who's in the habit of traveling to sissies and being in society, whereas Catherine, this is her first time. And when you think right. about the contrast that um, Austin makes between, say, like Fanny Price and Mary Crawford, I think it's one of those things where it really is, if you're in the country, your upbringing and the things you're exposed to and the things that you discuss are very different to the things that you would see or hear or read or do if you lived in the city. There was much more of a divide. And so Mm -hmm. that's worth considering when you think about the two girls as well, like just what people have access to. So uh, going back to your point that Northanger Abbey is a local novel, there's another detail that I actually really like that is um, sort of a little side detail in this first eight chapters. Um, and that is uh, James King, who was the master of ceremonies. And he is the guy that introduces Tilney to Catherine. And um, King was a real person. He was the second 
master of ceremonies in Bath after the infamous Beau Nash. Um, this is from an article uh, in Persuasion's journal written by Allison Thompson, which is also posted in our Facebook group. Upon arrival at Bath or another spa, the visitor was required to sign his or her name into the pump room book, after which he or she was waited upon by the master of ceremonies. He welcomed visitors, inquired into their satisfaction with their lodgings, ensured that they knew about the amenities of the city, and in effect, interviewed them to be sure that they were of appropriate quality to enter his domain, which I think is very interesting. Gatekeeper. Um, Yes, little gatekeeper. Dungeon master. He is the dungeon master. (laughs) In 1805, King became the MC of the more prestigious upper rooms and reigned there until his death in 1816. Austin knew very well that her contemporary readers would enjoy the joke of having this illustrious gentleman introduce her characters to each other. And this may be one of the first, if not the first example um, of interpolating a real person uh, into the work of fiction. I don't need that part. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I've just had a great idea. If you had hmm. a, a Jane Austen Bull uh, D&D group, then the master, the MC could be the DM. Yes! Because they control everything. Anyway, so you heard it here first, folks. So unless someone's already done it and I'm last, but I'm dating it today that it was my idea. You know, this is also like making me realize that I don't know how balls work. <laughs> Bulls. Balls. 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 I know how they work. <laughs> so again, I know that that's not like a big story or plot point, but I think it's really interesting that you have this little puppet master on in the background. And I wish I actually like knew more about him or I wish he was actually in the story more. I'm very interested in all the things that are like happening in Bath and how that society works, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, Another tiny little detail that I've just been thinking about that again is not terribly important or essential to the story um, is Mrs. Allen's dress, Mrs. Allen's fashion, her passion for fashion. So she comes to Bath and she's like, hey, I got to get all of these dresses made so I can be fabulous and go to the balls and be seen. I don't know anyone, but I just need to be seen. Yeah. (laughs) I just need to be on display. Um, And there is a note in my text. Of course, I got the um, annotated version of Northanger Abbey from Harvard University Press. And there are all these notes about uh, Mrs. Allen and the way that her dresses are pinned together. Um, and it would be very maybe difficult for her to move. I know at one point she tears a dress and she like wants Catherine to just like to look after her essentially yeah. because she's just all pinned up. I think the thing that's interesting to me and it comes up again and again, especially with the bulls, is that Miss. I mean, more than anything, Mrs. Allen is there to protect Catherine and she cannot do it because she no. is protecting her dresses. And instead of yes. being concerned about Catherine's welfare, Catherine has to take care of her and the outfit. And it doesn't just happen in this one ball. It happens multiple, multiple, multiple times. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I you know, almost like the dresses symbolize like a, a lack of care or misplaced care. Yeah. And looking yeah, for absolutely. trouble in the wrong places, looking for mm-hmm. things in the wrong places, just like Jonathan Thorpe. <laughs> 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 Yes, this is all about like bad information and misdirection. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. We'll keep that thought in your brain <laughs> while you read the next set of chapters, which we will discuss next week. And that will be 9 through 16. Um, we will be talking about them here. But of course, you are welcome to join us in our Facebook group where people are just now getting started. So it's not too late. If you haven't like picked up this book, it's totally fine. Just come on in. Have a chat with us about it. You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook in a Facebook group. And to get in, just prove you're not a robot. Oh, and then the other thing, you should, you're listening to this on a thing. If the, the way that you listen to us has a option to review the show, you should give us a great review. 
Oh, wow. A great one. A great one. <laughs> we used to ask you what you had for breakfast. So maybe we'll bring that back. And I'm still back. interested. I'm still, still interested. I still want to know. I still read those with delight. Especially if you ate a crumpet, because I gave a crumpet to my college roommate, Shiloh. And you know what she said to me when she finished mm. the crumpet, Lauren? She said, you're right, Hannah. This isn't like an English muffin. Wow. Mic drop. You know what? Okay. For season 4.1, if you have eaten a crumpet, just go in. You don't even have to like talk about the show when you write the little review. Just talk about crumpets. Thank you.